Her story reads like a Hollywood film. A woman who seems healthy is quarantined on a remote island off New York City because it's feared she's spreading a deadly disease. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Mary Mallon, better known as Typhoid Mary, spent much of her life quarantined on North Brother Island, so close but yet so far away from the hustle and bustle of Manhattan. She was the first known healthy carrier of typhoid fever. Author Mary Beth Keene has penned a novel based upon the life of Mary Mallon. It's called Fever. Mary Beth is with us in the studio this morning to talk about her new book. Mary Beth, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. For those not familiar with the story of Typhoid Mary, give us the cliff notes, if you will. The cliff notes are that uh, Mary Mallon, who's better known as Typhoid Mary, uh, was an Irish cook who moved to New York at the end of the 19th century and in the early part of the 20th century was discovered to be a healthy carrier of typhoid fever. And she worked for some of New York's wealthiest families um, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and she basically brought a tenement disease into their homes. So what does that mean to be a healthy carrier of typhoid? It means that she carried typhoid fever and passed it on through her cooking, um, but she never showed any symptoms of it herself. And until the end of her life, she claimed that she had never had typhoid fever. How many people did she infect? That um, the experts know of, they know she infected, the, the numbers vary a little bit, between 46 and 52 people Uh, three of whom died of the disease. It's likely that she infected more people than that, but, you know, it's difficult to get all the numbers because she sort of went on and off the radar throughout her career. How was it determined that she was indeed spreading this disease to others? The idea of a healthy carrier was sort of brand new science coming out of Europe. Um, And this very enterprising doctor, Dr. George Soper, was up on the research, and he was hired by a family Um, who had a vacation house in Oyster Bay that had suffered a typhoid outbreak. And he was hired to figure out where exactly the outbreak came from. And it is to his credit that he applied this new science and and figured out that it was this woman, this new cook, uh, Mary Mellon. Now, as you mentioned, she did not admit to this fact, but she was pretty defiant against this Dr. Soper, wasn't she? She was. I mean, this is some of the... Of course, I've written the novel, but I've tried to keep a lot of the history intact. And in several places, I read how she went at him with a roasting knife and fork when he came and told her this, you know, devastating news that she was passing on this deadly disease. Um, And at first, you know, it took me a while to get to know Mary, as strange as that may sound, you know, as, as a character, and I'm writing a novel, but... You know, I feel like I had to get to know her really well in order to spend so many years with her and write her story with a sort of sympathetic point of view. And so eventually I realized how terrifying it must have been for her to have a, a, a man of a different class, an educated person, come into her kitchen and accuse her of something that, you know, up until this point was completely unheard of. There were even um, doctors who just didn't believe it, you know, didn't buy it, that someone could look to be in the bloom of life and really be carrying such a deadly disease inside their bodies. How much did the general public know of typhoid fever at this time? Um, Not very much. And I kept reminding myself, you know, information um, sort of trickled down at a pace that was much slower, of course, than than for us now. And um, in elite medical circles, they understood that being a healthy carrier was possible. And of course, Soon after they identified Mary, they also realized that there were probably many healthy carriers out there. But in the tenements and in the in the streets of New York, you know, where the average person lived and worked, this was completely unheard of. How did you get to know Mary Mellon? 
Well, I mean, I began slowly. I'm not a historian, and so this was a difficult project for me, and I sort of was in denial about even taking it on um, for a long time. But I just started reading. Um, I saw a documentary about her, which is what started this all off, and then I read more because I was interested, and then I read more and more. And I, I just felt at the heart of her case was such an interesting class story, you know, rich against poor, educated against uneducated, uh, native-born versus immigrant. And I just, my back went up on her behalf. And she was a flawed person, there's no doubt. She was no saint. But I don't think I would have been interested in spending so much time with her if she were a completely pious, you know, victim in all this. She was she was really complicated. And I, I think, like all of the people I, you know, are dear to me in my life, we're all complicated. So I, I really was interested in exploring her case a lot further. Your family immigrated here from Ireland as well, yeah, correct? Right. In the 1960s, my um, my dad's from Galway and my mom's from Mayo. And I, and I think that's probably part of what um, drew me to this story when she, when Mary Mellon was quoted in the papers and her way of speaking was strange and her, her way of carrying herself was strange. It wasn't strange to me. You know, I felt like she was certainly within my wheelhouse. And I also felt when they when the doctors and the journalists and the, and the legal you know, professionals at the time were sort of putting her down for being uneducated and, and being a person who couldn't understand or you know, just didn't have the mind to, to digest all of this. You know, I've, I, the way I was brought up, because my parents are not educated in the way that their children have been, I knew that one had nothing to do with the other and that she was, in fact, a very intelligent person. Um, and so, of course, you know, this, this made it all more interesting to me. What was the primary source of your research for this novel? Um, this historian, as I call her, the real historian, Judith Walzer-Levitt, wrote a book about Typhoid Mary in the early 90s. And um, it sort of looked at her case through, you know, a social, legal, um, you know, perspective and um, medical perspective. And so I started there, and then I started looking at her sources. But then, you know, I'm writing a fiction, so at the heart of it, I had to have a story, and there was a time when I definitely had to put the research aside. It was sort of getting in the way of writing, you know, a story that I felt people could identify with and understand. Um, one of the best re resources I found was this book of sort of personal essays by in undistinguished Americans. That's what it was called. Um, and that gave me access to the servant class in a way that other texts didn't. You know, it didn't help me if the woman of the house, you know, the Mrs. Vanderbilt or whatever, was writing about how her cook felt. She didn't know. She had mm -hmm. no clue. And so I needed to know what the people in the kitchen really thought of the people who were employing them. And, and I did find things here and there. But the thing I found the most is that people haven't changed, you know, that much. And and as soon as I sort of remembered that and kept that in mind, I was able to sort of delve in and, and write the story. How so? How haven't people changed? One of the things I struck me and sort of I found moving in my research was about um, the way science was advancing and, um, you know, the airplane. This was a new thing that at first it flew, whatever, it's 50 meters, I don't remember, 100 meters. And then people were realizing that air flight was possible. This was terrifying to people. And and not just in a in a way that it's scary to think of yourself flying, but also in a moral way, which I found was really interesting. Cars, you know, were, were coming onto the scene, the automobile. And that also had sort of a moral component. Like, why do we need to go so fast? Why do we need to go so far? And in every case, 
you know, the older generation feels that the younger generation is, you know, is at its end. You know, things are worse now than they were when we grew up. And haven't we all heard this? Um, I mean, I know my mom still doesn't like when I go to a a debit machine. She (laughs) thinks I'm getting mixed up in sort of some underworld of cash, you know, (laughs) that, that she doesn't like. And I think this is just a chorus that probably has been going on since the beginning of time. One generation is always a little fearful and cautious, and the younger generation wants to dive right in. We, of course, today live in a 24-7 media world. How did the media cover the story of Mary Mallon back then? Well, when she was first um, taken into isolation, she was put on a quarantine island um, in the East River called North Brother Island. Some people might be familiar with it. They were sympathetic. There were a few papers that were sympathetic to her case because it seemed really unfair. She had no due process. She was taken out of her place of employment and literally kicking and screaming, put into a police wagon and just taken. And so there was some sympathy for her. Then she was released after several years and um, she had to sign an affidavit to say that she would never cook for hire again. And, you know, after a couple of years had gone by, they sort of understood more about the carrier status. They'd spend a few years trying to explain it to her. And then inevitably, you know, she goes back to cooking. I mean, this is not a plot spoiler. This is on the public record. Anyone who Googles her knows this. And so after she went back to cooking and was put in isolation for the second time, that's when the paper sort of turned on her and made her a villain. And that's when she really became, you know, no longer Mary Mallon, but just Typhoid Mary. She was also known as the germ woman. The germ woman, yeah. And Typhoid Mary, that that was sort of an accident. Um, the the person who named her didn't know that her real name was Mary Mallon and just gave her that name because surely all Irish cooks are named Mary. And, you know, he turned out to be right. So, When she went back to cooking, she went to work at a maternity hospital <laughs> in New York City. Yeah. Sloan. Yeah, Sloan Maternity Hospital. She really did try to stay to the straight and narrow for several years, and I believe that. She changed her name, though, to Mary Brown. That's true. She did change her name, and I think that little bit of caution tells us something about her guilt. You know, I, I think that we can all live in a state of denial that's irrational and illogical and impossible to explain, and I think that she was one of those people. You know, who knows? Maybe she just thought... She'd been so wronged. She knew she was not allowed to cook. Whether she agreed with those reasons, you know, is a different story. Um, But she did change her name, and she went back to cooking. And I feel defensive of her, like she's an older sister or something. But a cook was quite a good position in a house at that time. She was making pretty good money. She was a single woman supporting herself. And they didn't give her training for any other sort of job. When she was first released from North Brother, they got her a job as a laundress, which for her was a step down. She was making less money. And it was hard work. Yeah, and it was very hard work. Um, And she did, you know, I I put her laundry in a place that, um, you know, it wasn't But I for the fiction. But she did work as a laundress for a little time, and she did try to, to stick to the program. But chances are it just, we don't know why she went back to cooking, but it it probably was very difficult to make ends meet and awfully tempting. I also think she enjoyed her work, which is something that was just not, didn't come up at all because the concept of your, your cook enjoying what she does and considering it a career as much of a job was something I think the upper classes didn't consider. Between the time she was a laundress and the time that she went to work for the maternity hospital as a cook, she baked. And in your book, she sort of has this psychology that baking and cooking aren't the same thing. 
Well, that's my um, that that was my invention because I sort of wanted her to transition, you know, baby steps into the big sin, I suppose. But I think we tell ourselves things like this all the time. That's not the same, you know. It's so, and and I think her whole life was a sort of a system of of levers and pulleys of rationalization and denial. And so that was one. And the truth is, people often didn't get sick when she cooked and baked. More often than not, they didn't get sick. And so when I tried to erase my present point of view on all this and everything we know about germs and bacteria, I could see why it it seemed extremely far-fetched. There were lots of families she cooked for that didn't get sick. So, you know, why not dismiss it? When people at the maternity hospital did indeed start to get sick, did she realize at that point that she was spreading this disease? Um, I mean, the truth is we don't know. One of the things that makes her such a good character for my purposes is that we know so little about her interior life at all. She left no diaries, no letters. Um, she has one letter on file as part of her habeas corpus file, and that's it. Wow. So I don't know what she thought. I think it would seem awfully coincidental um, and I, I, like I said, I think she was a very intelligent person, but I, I still think, you know, we as human beings can push information that we don't want away with, with both hands. And I think that makes you a complicated person, but not necessarily a villain. Mary did indeed have her day in court. How did she manage to obtain legal counsel while she was quarantined on North Brother Island? Well, that's also a little bit hazy, um, but she had been trying since her arrival uh, on North Brother Island to get some sort of help in a legal way. And um, they had been doing testing on her since since they took her from her employment. And she did try to obtain private tests um, at a place called the Ferguson Lab to try to kind of boost up her her file and her defense. And so that tells me that she'd had a defense in mind, you know, from the moment or some sort of strategy from the moment she arrived. Her case was in the headlines. So, you know, lawyers were reading about her and and it's possible someone, you know, just got interested. Some rumors went around at the time that um, William Randolph Hearst paid for her representation because his paper took a sympathetic stance on her case. But there's nothing I found that that said, you know, definitively either way. While she was on North Brother Island, at least in your book, she writes to her love interest in Manhattan, Alfred. Alfred. Was that a true relationship? The troubled Alfred? Yes, the very troubled Alfred. You know, he is a guy who showed up in the research here and there. Um, Sometimes he had a different name, Albert, or um, in in my book, his last name is Bryhoff. Sometimes it was Bryhoffer. Brezhoff. I mean, it's the same guy. And he was just described as this man she lived with occasionally when she, she was, was not married. She was not married. Was to that him. a big deal back then? Oh, yeah. And that was I mean, there were several things that were held, held against her and that that she lived with a man without being married was one of him, one of them. And that he was a man, as Dr. Soper called him, of low moral character was another. So, you know, I think he was a, a love interest in her life. I sort of had to put two and two together for my purposes. But I mean, who knows? Maybe they were just best friends. I doubt it. But um, yeah, he was a real person. But I've, I've certainly built on that. What so those letters were all fiction. You didn't They're discover a box of letters to Alfred. Right. No, <laughs> no, that would have been great. Actually, no, it wouldn't have because it would have meant I'd have to stick to more more of the plan than I even had to. And I kept I mean, the the trouble with this book was balancing fact and fiction throughout. So there was a point where I wanted to keep facts out of the picture you know at a certain I had enough to work with and then I just had to write and so and I needed to be able to have a little elbow room to you know 
create a story within that space. So at, at some point, I purposefully stayed away from some of the places she'd been. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. Our guest this morning is Mary Beth Keene. She's here to talk about her new book called Fever. The novel is based upon the life of Mary Mallon, known to history as Typhoid Mary. Mallon was the first known healthy carrier of typhoid fever and spent most of her life quarantined on North Brother Island on the East River. How far is North Brother Island from Manhattan across the East River? Well, from the Bronx, it's just maybe a couple, maybe 100 yards, 200 yards. I'm not exactly sure because I've just had to look at pictures. I've not been allowed to go. I know it's all also just 100 yards or so from Rikers. Somebody will have to fact check this, but it's all very close. One of the, the most striking photos I saw was from North Brother looking back, and it seemed so close, and that must have been really frustrating, you know, to be a resident. You sort of see life going by over there, and you're not part of it. So close, but yet so, so, so far away. And the waters are really treacherous. They still are. So I can see why a person would be tempted to swim, you know, or get some sort of boat together, and they just, you know, didn't make it. And it was a much quieter city back then, so I'm sure on North Brother Island, you didn't even hear the buzz of Manhattan. Well, I think they heard bells and trains and the trolleys going, like little things like that, especially at night. But, right, I mean, there was nothing like the traffic we have on the FDR now or things like that. As far as you know, are there any remnants of Mary's world still on North Brother Island? As of a decade ago, I believe her cottage was still standing. Wow. um, But it's not anymore. The hospital is still there, the outbuildings um, grown over completely. And I saw photographs about a year ago and finally realized why I couldn't get permission. I think it was probably a liability issue. There's it's just really overgrown and in sh- shambles. And I think a New York Times reporter photographer went with someone who had a chainsaw, someone who had a hatchet, you know, to kind of get through the vines and whatnot. So, you know, I get it. I just gave up and decided this is what an imagination is for. Yeah. <laughs> so so anyone with a communicable disease was taken to North Brother Island during that time? North Brother was primarily a, a tuberculosis um, island. Riverside Hospital treated tuberculosis, I think some cases of diphtheria, but no typhoid fever except for Mary Mellon. There was one other health, healthy carrier discovered years later, and there were many healthy carriers discovered, but one other in particular ended up doing a short stint on North Brother because he also went back to cooking after being told not to. But other than that, Mary was the only case. In your book, you write about a dairy farmer in upstate New yeah. York that was a healthy carrier. Right. I sort of compressed time to move the story along. But there were several notable healthy carriers who worked in the food industry, like Mary, were warned, went back to cooking. They all infected far more people than Mary Mallon ever did, resulted in more deaths, and nobody was ever held indefinitely the way Mary Mallon was. And so that just told me there was something about her as a person that was so offensive to people that they just focused on her, you know, and made her an example. I think she had a grating personality. I think she sort of turned expectations on their end about what a woman should be and should want at this time. And I think people, you know, I think that's terrifying to some people. And she was, you know, singular in that way. Are there photos of Mary Mallon? There are a few. There's one of her in a hospital bed in Willard Parker Hospital. And, and um, there there are one or two that it's it's likely it's Mary Mallon sitting outside at Riverside Hospital sort of knitting with the tuberculosis patients. 
And then there's one or two when she's an older woman after she's had a stroke. The younger ones were interesting to me because as the reporters were, some reporters were sort of villainizing her and saying how, you know, ugly and terrifying she was and how she looked um, unlike other people. I'm looking at the photograph and thinking, no, she doesn't. She looks like a perfectly attractive young woman in a hospital bed who's just been through trauma. You know, so we see what we want to see. And that's clear with one photo in particular. In the book, Mary has a friend, if you will, on North Brother Island, although she doesn't always see him as a friend. That's the caretaker of the island. Right. Why did you create that character? Um, Because I felt Mary was so angry and frustrated. She really had tunnel vision from the moment she got to the island, at least in my imagination. And I think that's probably true to life. I wanted something to humanize her a little bit. And John Kane, who is the character, is such a nice guy. And the fact that he liked her, you know, and liked being around her, um, to me, showed me she was a decent person. You know, she might be a one-note song and that she just, it, she only had one thing on her mind at all times, which was getting off the island. But I imagine them sort of spending normal time together as well. She was there for a long time. They planted flowers. They talked. You know, they got to know each other a little bit. Um And so, I don't know, I wanted to balance out all the horror in her life. So she spent, what, three years on the island before she was released? Right. Yeah, just short of three years, yeah. And how many years when she was returned to the island? 23 years. She died there. So she spent a total of about 26 years on the island. And, you know, these were the 26 years where she was, she got there in her prime. She was 38, I believe, and um, she died in in her late 60s, so... You know, who knows? She would have been cooking probably for for more years. She was healthy until her stroke at the very end. So, you know, we don't know. But it was it it is something to mourn. I think you know, it's not whether or not she was doing what they accused her of doing. Having a disease is not a person's fault, right? She didn't go and get that disease. And so, I think they knew pretty soon after they quarantined her that they just couldn't treat healthy carriers this way. But for some reason, they never corrected the way that they they treated her. So she never at all experienced any symptoms of typhoid fever? That's her claim. It's possible that her symptoms were so light that she she just mistook it for a cold or a flu. Um, She could have had it as early as before she left for the U.S. She left Ireland when she was a teenager. Um, She was from County Tyrone. You know, they don't know. I think the doctors assumed she did have the case, but it at some point, but it was just so mild. We today are still very fearful of disease. Yeah. Can this happen again? You know, Has it happened again? AIDS, for instance. Yeah. It, it, during the AIDS epidemic, it was really interesting to me that the story of Typhoid Mary sort of had this resurgence. There were, I think there was a play, there was a book, there was this radio performance. Um, there was interest in her case. I think any time there's a situation that puts an individual person's rights against the protection of the public health as a whole, her case is relevant. Drug-resistant tuberculosis, there were some notable cases in the last couple of years where a person was put into forced quarantine. One young man, he left the building where he was living. He knew that he had this strain of tuberculosis, but he, he didn't wear a mask, and they put him in isolation. I mean, total isolation, no windows, no computer, no TV, for close to a year until the um, ACLU picked up his case. And and like Typhoid Mary, um, or like Mary Mallon, things that came up in descriptions of him were also not 100% relevant. You know, he'd 
He'd immigrated from Russia. He was living in Arizona at the time. Um, he was a former drug user. You know, all of these things come up. Who you are and who you infect is is as important as the disease itself, you know, and having it. Are you aware of any descendants of Mary Mallon? I'm not, thank God, sort of, you know. <laughs> um, she, as far as we know, she had no children, no family. She may have come to the U.S. to an aunt, um, and I just sort of decided to believe that, and I've made her arrive to an aunt in, in my book. But as far as I know, that aunt has no descendants, and, you know, so no. The story of Mary Mellon also allowed you to tell other stories from New York City history, including the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. Right. This was such a vivid time in New York's history, and I sort of, you know, put forced Mary Mellon's story, you know, alongside the Triangle story because they were both about, you know, health in some ways. The, the, the conditions in the factory were just so horrid, and as part of the shame and the guilt, I think that's kept that story relevant ever since. And also about, you know, class and work and being a woman. You know, the, the people who died in the Triangle Fire were predominantly girls, you know, young women. And Mary was a woman trying to make her way in a city. And it just it just was so vivid to me thinking of the, the suffrage movement starting to get underway, the first inklings of prohibition. You know, we were ahead, but there was this buttoned up feeling that you were starting to get from especially the upper classes who were sort of evangelizing at the same time they were... Um, training their new staff. And so, yeah, I tried to put certain things in the pot, you know, alongside Mary and contextualize her a little bit. The Titanic goes down when she's off the island in her little interim between isolations. And I mean, that's something we're still talking about now. I can't imagine how much talk time in the kitchens that got, you know, during during that period. So she was alive at an interesting time. If you had an opportunity to sit down for tea with Mary Mallon, what are some of the things you would want to ask her? I mean, the great, I thought about this, and this is what makes her so interesting, is that if I sat down to tea with Mary Mallon, as much as I believe she should not have been in isolation for that long, and she, she shouldn't have been robbed of her life in this way, I would not love, you know, being handed a biscuit from Mary Mallon. I, I would really, I doubt I would eat it. You know, and and so that's the tragedy of it, you know, that people never forgot who she was. But I, I think I would try to ask her what she knew, you know, without judgment and when she knew it. But I know that she would never talk about it until the end of her life. If you brought up typhoid fever in her presence, um, she got really angry. So maybe we talk about other things. And there's a little snippet in the epilogue. I just couldn't leave it alone because I thought it was so sad. Um, Dr. Sherman, who was a real doctor, on North Brother Island, toward the end of Mary's stay there, Mary brought her an apple that she thought looked particularly nice, and, and she liked Dr. Sherman, and so she gave it to Dr. Sherman. And Dr. Sherman left it purposefully, um, I think, by something containing urine, or in any case, had an excuse to throw it out. And in my imagination, because I think Mary is smart, Mary knew, you know, and didn't say anything. Whether she really knew, you know, who knows. Whatever happened to Dr. Soper, because essentially he was vindicated here. She denied that she was spreading this disease, but he was right. Yeah, he's the hero of the story um, to a lot of people. And it's his story that's in the medical textbooks, that's in the legal annals. And he's sort of been the hero of the story for 100 years. And and that's great. You know, I don't want to take that away from him, but I think he never considered her point of view in all this. I think they were just two people who didn't understand each other. One of my favorite research moments was when he um, approached her 
just hours after she'd been captured and tried to ask her to collaborate on a story about her life that he would write and he would give her the proceeds. And I could just imagine he felt this was so generous of him and he was being such a great guy. And apparently she just got up from her bed, went into the restroom and shut the door in his face, which he found to be so rude. I mean, this is an uneducated woman who has no income now and how could she decline this great opportunity? And I just thought, you don't get it, dude. You know, you just don't understand that she had a full life. She's not just this, you know, person as part of your textbook and your and your paper. But he didn't get it. He really didn't. And I don't take it away from him. I think he was really smart. And we've learned a lot because of this case. But at the same time, you know, it doesn't make her life any less. As I was reading your novel, I couldn't help but think that I would love to see this on the big screen. Is that a hope of yours? Sure, of course. I mean, I think anybody who writes a novel would be interested in that. I mean, it makes me slightly nervous. You know, actors and actresses that are so specific. I've I've imagined Mary my way, you know, for for years now. And so, but um, I think so. I mean, I don't think she's a typical Hollywood character in that she is so flawed. But, um, you know, I, I know it's a movie I would see for sure. It'd be interesting. Mary Beth Keene, the book is Fever. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Fever is out now from Scribner. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember, past episodes of Cityscape are archived on our website, wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV Cityscape. I'm George Bolarki. My thanks to senior producer Morlene Chin and producer Julie Clark. Have a great weekend. <laughs>